Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. The war is not this big, distant thing. It takes a whole bunch of us um, to think that we're doing good um, to participate. And when you figure out, when you find out, when you have that conscious awakening, because I believe it will come, um, when you have that awakening of what you're participating in, it will hit you like a ton of bricks and you will feel, uh, depending on what unit you're in or if you have conscious people around you, right. you will feel um, alone. That was Natasha Erskine. Vice President of Veterans for Peace, and if you are considering joining the military, you need to listen. If you are a post-9-11 vet, you need to listen. And if you know anyone that is just both of those, then you need to listen. So my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with co-host and fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice to just go to veteransforpeace.org for more information. This show is on stations across the country, thanks to Pacifica. Uh, we're also on SoundCloud, Anchor, Spotify, and you can find us on your phone. Just go to the podcast app, search for Veterans for Peace. Veterans Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. So today, our special guest is Natasha Erskine, the Vice President of Veterans for Peace. She is an Air Force veteran retiring in 2016, also the president of, Ch of the Ch Chicago chapter of Veterans for Peace and co-host of the podcast, Stand Down. We pick up our conversation after she has just realized she is no longer in a peacetime Air Force. Um, and then 9-11 happens. Mm. And then a lot of things changed um, in terms of being, you know, joining during peacetime or, you know, what really was overwhelmingly believed to be during peacetime. Um, and then seeing that immediately um, shift the mission focus and, um, you know, with real, no, no, you know, no real explanation, um, other than, you know, we're going to go and get the bad guys that hit us first. And so that really did, um, you know, it really did shift a lot of my understanding in terms of just, um, not even say understanding, my experience in the military. So everything then became, um, you know, fifth gear or very fast um, in terms of operations tempo, Everything had a deadline of yesterday, um, which didn't leave much time for thought, right? Um, you were either going to uh, think or swim, which really in military determines if you're going to be promoted or left behind. Um, and so you make a decision. I made the decision to swim. And, and I'll just say and wrap up here that, again, I just, you know, sometimes I had a lot of, you know, contradictions about what I was participating in. But again, there was that mindset um, just so many things. Do I take care? How do I take care of my family? How do I support even my family back at home, which I did throughout my 20 years? Um, and so, you know, I continued on and it, and it really came up for me when I retired. A lot of stuff came up <laughs> um, and it was scary. There was, you know, I withdrew um, from my social circles and, you know, just really wanted to spend time and process it. What that ended up was like a couple months of just, you know, thinking and processing things that I didn't remember that I had participated in. Mm -hmm. And so while out in the community, I think it was an event um, for, you know, reducing cash bail or mass incarceration event. And we were talking about the connection between the police and military. And, you know, being a veteran, I was speaking. And then someone from VFP, um, Arnie Stieber, who's in the Chicago chapter, was like, hey, you know, we should talk, you know, get together. And anyway, we ended up having a coffee the next week. Mm -hmm. He being a Vietnam veteran mm -hmm. helped me, ex you know, really start the process of unpacking my military experience because he had told me what had come up for him 20 years later. Um, 
and and you know so we kind of bonded on the fact that you know you can get through this you know process it talking to people being in community with others who you know might have the same moral injury um, can help you through it and so that was four years ago and that was my real quick um, like I said maybe eight months out of out of um, retirement and when I uh, joined VFP uh, two weeks ago for Memorial Day on the show we had Michael and Cynthia Orange and they both written books about uh, getting out of the military and like you say unpacking Michael um, has been diagnosed with PTSD and Cynthia's his wife has written a book about caretaking somebody with PTSD. So it sounds like you had to go through something very, very similar. Do you want to, do you want to share a little bit more about that unpack? You know, I want to say too, is that it wasn't a deliberate process. It sort of, you know, just came up. Things started coming up. The more, um, I will say quite honestly, most of my friends in my social circle, you know, are still very patriotic and still, you know, hold on to, you know, you know, the, the honor of having, you know, quote, served their country. And we would have debates about things that I was seeing. So I, you know, retired and then I moved back to my hometown um, and seeing the need for social services mm -hmm. and you know seeing and it, and it was just like almost immediate to me that I started seeing that there was never a thing in the military that we could not get funded uh, right? right I mean yeah. we would even before the the budget you know would come down from you know DC we never stopped spending everything was you know under the understanding that the money was going to come and then to come home and see that all of those services, mental health clinics have been closed across the city, particularly in the places where folks needed them the most. Um, dire resources are not in schools. And so to hear the, the, the alibi be that there's a lack of funding, you know, I really started just really questioning like, wow, this is kind of odd. So I would talk to folks about it and they just had no one didn't want to talk about it. And then two, um, I saw how unpopular um, that it can quickly make you to start questioning um, the, the fiscal responsibility. So that was like sort of what I think just started me on this journey of like asking more questions. But then, you know, I've started saying, well, okay, well, when back in, you know, 2000, when I had the idea of, okay, I have another year left on my enlistment. Like, why did I continue on? Or when I started questioning the things that I saw, the more, you know, security clearance, the more access to information that I had, why did I continue on, right? And then that just started, you know, reminding me of all of the missions that I had participated in. So I went back and read some of my enlisted reports, you know, which is a way to promote yourself self, right? Um, if your list of report looks good, it'll get you promoted. And the things that was written in there, I had really forgotten about it. Mm -hmm. Now I went, you know, it was not just the enlisted reports, but like some of my old medals and decorations, uh, which explained like these things that I had done to bring great credit to the U.S. Air Force were starting to like really question um, what type of global citizen I had or neighbor um, that I had been and just participating in things that were just so much deeper than what even our unit talked about, you know, so I was just starting to really have this conscious awakening of, you know, what was happening in the world and how the U.S. military um, was a part of it. But, you know, I really want to say it was, it was, you know, it was that, but what really was coming up was the social aspects of what I was seeing in my community, um, what I had seen while I was still on active duty. Um, I talk, tell folks this all the time. I used to take leave and go to um, protests and actions, you know, within a few hours drive, um, you know, back then. So I was, it wasn't new to me, but it was really shocking to see what was happening in Chicago. And I think just that, you know, returning home and, you know, trying to reacclimate myself 
to things that, you know, I told folks, like, I understand what people who are, you know, formerly incarcerated when they come home and things are just completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, you know, even though I was coming home on leave and coming to visit family, it was usually like a vacation. So I wasn't digging deep into the things, but I think that really started to, you know, really make me question, um, you know, what I was participating in. Some of the darkest things um, were some of the last things that I participated in on active duty, which was, um, you know, helping to increase the footprint in AFRICOM. Um, so while I was at, um, at the uh, um, AFSOC um, and there in Florida, you know, that was one of the last, I would say last big um, transitions that we had um, did. It's no secret, this is public knowledge, but to see um, to be on the other side of that knowledge and witnessing what it is now today, um, but even just a few years ago, just started bringing me shame. So I didn't know what it was. And then I was somewhere on the University of Illinois, um, Chicago campus at, you know, one of those public seminars. And we were in, and it was something around, you know, just participating in, I can't remember what the actual lecture was about, but something I went and just, you know, got in touch with this the lecturer and the scholar and we sat down for coffee and it was like, oh, it's moral injury, right? Um, and so really find, you know, figuring out, you know, what the, what was coming up for me and how, you know, a lot of people say it's usually delayed. I guess I picked at it. Um, and so I have no regrets. So I could talk so much about it. I'm still figuring it out too, to be, to be quite honest. I do not feel like I have this thing completely figured out. Um, and how my family has been helpful is that they have not let up. Um, some family members don't understand um, why I'm not like most veterans, right? Who, who are, you know, proudly still wearing their medals and, and you know, bragging about the, the, the days of wherever I was. Um, and they don't understand that and that's okay. But for the for overwhelmingly, my family visited me over those 20 years, even when I was stationed overseas, they came to England one year for Thanksgiving. I think it was 12 of them that came. So that was, wow. was, was neat. And that, you know, that's just sort of the testament that I'm, you know, I come from a small yet tight knit family who, you know, they don't even ask many questions. They just want to make sure mm -hmm. that I'm good. Um, I don't come from a large military, you know, family. I think I have two family members before me who were in the military. Um, so, so, you know, above all, I think, you know, just making sure that I'm good. Um, and if I need to just making sure mm -hmm. that I have support. So, yeah, what? hopefully that helps folks who are, you know, coming up with this. I hope that out of all of what I just said is surround yourself with the people <laughs> who can, you know, even if they don't understand, they're gonna support you no matter what. Um, and seeking out people who um, may have gone through the same thing and can help pull you through that. Cause that's, that's what's been critically important for me. That's incredible, especially the, the family coming over to England and, yeah. and to just check, were you good uh, on if you were good? And so were you good? <laughs> were you okay no in and in, in england now, now that i look back uh hindsight being 2020 um i had you know lost a family member who was on active duty in the army um you know at like the very start of my assignment so right when i got off the plane i was like <clears throat> oh there's all these you know great people who are here to you know sort of welcome me well, the reality was they were there to hand me a um, Red Cross notification. So it wasn't the best introduction to the assignment. Um, and I don't know, I guess my family sort of sort of knew that. So they, you know, came over and we just sort of, you know, made a pact that uh, despite that, you know, we would just, you know, stay connected. And someone would always be there to support. We would do weekly calls. You know, this was way before Zoom, so we weren't able to see each other. But you know, just to get on the phone call with my cousins and just you know crack crack jokes and and feel connected. Listen, you know, did what they call now self care. So when I wasn't on duty, you know, I would get out of the area and do different things. Um, so that was helpful. <clears throat> but I, when I look back at it, 
you know, England was um, really, like I said, that shift. Um, 9-11 had also happened that very next year. Um, and just seeing the, the shift in what was demanded um, of us. And like, again, not really having a transition from peacetime to, um, oh snap, you know, you're about to be issued um, all of the, you know, prevention, you know, briefings and, and um, you know, vaccinations because any day now you can be called to deploy. Um, and so that was, that was an incredible shift that I didn't, again, I didn't process at that time. You didn't ask questions um, of command because that just was unpopular. Um, and then you tuck all of that in and you keep going <laughs> um, for another, you know, 15 years um, and, and keep, you know, just almost, you know, uh, indescribable when I think of um, what that experience was like. Because again, you have something that's so raw that happens to you where you probably, you know, if I'm speaking to what I know now, you know, should have definitely had some support you know, at least talk through things with a therapist. Um, but those, that has never been popular from my time on active duty where you can go and talk to mental health and make sure that your headspace is good. So you find, you know, other outlets. Some folks have reckless outlets. Um, you know, mine was travel. You know, mine was to make sure that I surrounded myself with friends. So whether they were stationed in Germany, you know, there was an opportunity to go and take flights to go and see friends or whatever. So I would say that's how I sustain myself was to not deal with it but that's unhealthy um you know so and, and you know I didn't say this earlier but things did start to come to surface while I was on active duty so like my last three years were my most difficult mm. where I was questioning a lot of things and I and and you know being in Florida I was deeply impacted by the response well one the murder of Trayvon Martin Mm -hmm. um, and then the response that I heard throughout my unit. So listen, I was in a special operations unit, completely, you know, almost 98% um, of it was, was white male. Um, you know, type A personality was the basic, but these guys were, you know, you all know, special operators are just different. Um, and you know, being in that world was just extremely stifling and racist and gaslighting. Um, and so their response to that um, just, you know, was like really frustrating as a black woman. Yeah. Um, and then when Fred, um, I think it was, uh, so it was Freddie Gray in Baltimore, but then it yeah. was, and then it was um, Michael Brown in mm. St. Louis. And so <clears throat> this here is where I think I started to really question my participation in the military um, for the first, first real time because I could connect myself to what I saw happening. So in Ferguson, when the, when the people stood up and said, this is, they were not gonna, you know, um, you know, they just stood up and responded to that murder. Um, and I saw the vehicles that the police were rolling down the street in, their um, MRAP vehicles were mine resistant, ambush protected vehicles that I had participated in um, a program in purchasing those vehicles. Um, so from the drawdown to Iraq, um, to Kuwait, and then on to Afghanistan um, was a program that I had participated in, I had a decoration for, it's on my report. I saw these vehicles that were purchased for, you know, I thought Afghanistan and Iraq, not that they should be there either, but to see them rolling down the street in St. Louis and then to go and do research and find out how they, you know, what was under the Obama administration, why so many of them were being given to the police departments to be used on people who look like me mm -hmm. um, really didn't sit well. Um, so the more I took leave and went out to social actions and, and really started to participate more was the confliction of being in the military. So those last three years, I crawled across the finish line to 20, mm -hmm. um, mostly because of what I just shared with you. Did you have other uh, service members in your, in your unit that, that were people of color that you had an opportunity to 
share any of these feelings with? I did. And a lot of them told me to be quiet. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like folks, you know, one thing about the military is very swift to punish mm -hmm. uh, Black folks, uh, yeah. whether that be through court martial, mm -hmm. through demotion, yeah. um, through, and that's not new. <laughs> I used to think it was new, but then I, you know, realized that this is historical and has been a constant. So, you know, folks were scared and, you know, folks would say, don't quote, buck the system um, mm -hmm. if you wanna, you know, get out of here with your stripes and, and your money. So um, a lot of times, you know, folks didn't really, they would listen, but they, they weren't, you know, participating yeah. in a way that I thought um, that I needed to. Yeah. <clears throat> what about being a woman? What impact did that have, you think? A lot. I. Um, and again, at the time I used to label it like, man, you know, you know, the Air Force being the least diverse, um, everyone knows, I don't even think it's a secret that it is um, one of the most uh, stifling environments for black folks, period, but for black women. But I hear the same from black men, you know, who, mm -hmm. who also have their experience. So this isn't, you know, by, by no means to, to sort of divide the black experience, but as a woman, it was um, it was it was wild. I think I shared with you all before, like, or maybe not with you all, but in another space recently, that because of the rape culture in the military, a lot of women maybe not even directly impacted, you know. So that's my story: not being a directly impacted woman from military sexual trauma, or so I thought. Um, you know, still weighs on you because you witness the guy or, um, or the perpetrator, most usually it was a guy, um, come back to the office and see the woman moved out, um, you know, which was also wicked. But it was when Black women um, would be the victim in those cases that I would see, um, you know, the least resources done, you know, she not be believed. Um, and then to be a supervisor of some of those um, you know, young women. Um, I've never had a male airman experience that, or at least report. But to hear, to just you know, see and to try to be an advocate, you know, for their, you know, I was a victim's advocate for I think six years um, in total, and mm -hmm. so to be so close to the, you know, those those stories um, and their reports and their experiences and how they weren't well, um, I think it just impacts me generally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to just know that there was a general feel of not being safe, particularly in the deployed locations. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the racism and the sexism that I experienced as a Black woman in the Air Force has had a chilling effect on my life. Mm -hmm. I've said that it has patently changed me. Um, it has impacted me in a way that um, you know, that's the greatest resentment that I have is that the military has mm -hmm. such an unchecked racist um, culture. Um, and, you know, being a woman just, you know, feels like a, a double dose of that uh, curse, if you will. So you had the multiple levels there of having to try to protect yourself and maintain your own <coughs> self uh, sense of self, but also feeling responsible for women who uh, you were you, you were you know supervising or had responsibilities toward. And you know, hold on to you know the hope. Just like I see folks, my friends who are still on active duty, holding on to hope that okay, you know this rise in attention to the rape culture. There's a, a recent article that's out by the AP. I think it was out um, around the 27th of May that talks to the racist culture in the military, um, particularly the Air Force and the Marine Corps. Um, that what you hold on to hope that the, you know, all of this publicity and being in the media and folks talking about it is going to bring, you know, change. And it's been a long time since I first had that help, you know, held that hope. And so I'm really, you know, which motivates me to speak. Quite honestly, I, I would rather, you know, I say I would rather not, but I, I am happy to talk about this because, you know, if we don't, we think that there's not a problem. And so I'm hopeful that of all the things that like I'm sharing with you, 
um, that your your listeners um, will hear is that this is also an opportunity moment to not just sort of um, just land on say my story, but that folks are still going through this stuff today and how we can help and be a vessel for um, change is to apply pressure on decision makers. There's probably a bill or uh, an op-ed or you know something somewhere locally where you can you know press on your local electeds um, to vote in a way that will give um, the troops um, some real support. Um, most people in the military come from working for you know, marginalized communities, and so they deserve to be treated whole um, when they dare go out and sacrifice their mind, body, um, and soul um, for American imperialism. You are listening to Natasha Erskine, Vice President of Veterans for Peace on the Veterans for Peace radio app. And you got out in 2016, right? I did. I mean, you've just mentioned the article with the AP, but I know 10 years ago, Kirsten Gillibrand or whatever was leading a charge uh, about uh, about um, the rape culture in the military and trying to adjust things. But I don't see any changes. Do you see any changes? Not enough. And I remember following her, um, the senator from New York, mm-hmm. because she was saying the things that you know many of us felt like would move a mountain. I mean, she was telling the truth. And to see, <laughs> I tell people a lot. <clears throat> some of my offices, the places that I've worked. Um, you know, would write the media releases that would end up on the news. And so, you know, even though the senator was telling the truth, um, there was always a media strategy to deflect um, and to sort of, you know, put lip service to that response. And so, you know, two weeks of, you know, Mm -hmm. this is how we're going to reform. This is how we're going to bring more training you know, all of that um, was cyclical. Um, yeah. So it would, we would do it. There would be no enforcement, no accountability. But on the outside, it looks like, well, they're doing things to change the culture. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you the Air Force specifically, yeah. um, it was extremely stubborn um, towards accountability, um, you know, of creating safe workspaces. I didn't know until later mm-hmm you know, how much it affected me to be a part of a woman's journey after she had been, you know, I don't know, it was just so much about that, that I just, you know, take on so much understanding of what um, the victims of military sexual trauma and how they're patently, you know, I would say, um, you know, how it changed them, but to see how command had opportunities to do very simple things. And they usually would miss that opportunity. Right. Um, particularly in the deployment zones. I mean, I've, you know, none of this, you know, is new to folks, but to see what, you know, young people would do to one another, to see how a lot of times it would be, you know, officers committing or commanders or, Mm -hmm. you know, people with um, position power Mm -hmm. who would do these things and, you know, get away with it because, you know, rank has its privileges, I guess. Um, And so, Oh, so yeah. The, the lack of accountability, the good old boy system um, is, 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 you know, still rampant. And I and I and I'll argue is why there is no real change, right. um, because the perpetrators yeah. oftentimes position themselves as well liked, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, so there's that. Would- I think they're still fighting over uh, trying to move this outside the chain of command for uh, reporting and and enforcement and you know the chain of command is is never going to work. <laughs> I do understand and appreciate the movement towards removing it from the chain of command, but that's also reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really like to see that there be proactive measures taken um, to change the culture. Um, so I think cha- taking it out of the chain of command assumes that the rape culture will continue to happen and we want to ensure accountability on the back end. And it's like you're letting the chain of command off the hook and 
Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. They don't want to yeah. deal with it. We know yeah. they don't want to deal with it because they don't do anything with it. We get right. the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So if you met a young African-American young lady just ready to graduate from high school, and she says, I'm thinking about joining the military. I'm thinking about joining the Air Force. What are you going to tell her? You know, have a coffee. Let's talk about, um, you know, and also with, with her parents. Because, you know, my parents didn't know. They, you know, they listened to the recruiter say what he was going to say. Um, we're still friends, my recruiter and I, by the way. He didn't lie. He wasn't a deceptive recruiter. But, but he made, sure made things sound um, really good. And there were good parts of my 20 years, believe me. Um, but the dark parts of what, you know, um, definitely are, you know, stand out. So I would want to make sure that she understands that the Air Force um, is not, you know, automatically going to treat her well. And in many spaces, she will question, um, you know, what she, you know, why does she have to jump through so much <laughs> to be promoted, to be seen, um, to be recognized for her work. Um, so that, you know, story is one that quite honestly, I can only have with, um, you know, young women who already understand um, how America treats us. But then to get into the military, um, I would really want her to understand that um, a lot of times that hatred comes um, from the people that work nearest to you are the people who you're supposed to, you know, sacrifice your life for, which is hurtful. And then to see that the chain of command, um, you know, which may not look like her, um, very likely in the Air Force, which is the most least diverse in terms of leadership and command, um, you know, won't, won't, you know, might not support her um, experience, um, you know, but then also want her to know that if she does, you know, decide to go in to get a mentor, um, I would connect her to people that I might know in a career field that she's interested in, someone who's on active duty to talk with her right now, to give her a perspective um, of what it is. And I would really want her to read into some of the military, um, um, you know, realities of what being, you know, to, to enlist in these current days means that you pretty much signed up for, to be a participant, to participate in war. Um, so I would want her to know, you know, what it feels like when you come back and you are not the same person that left. <laughs> You'll be very tempted, like I did, to hide that or try your best to hide that. Um, and, you know, so encourage her you know, when harms come to speak up, to be bold, to be brave and to stay connected with her family, um, which will center her and have a time, hold yourself to that time. If you say you're gonna do five, six years and get out, do that, have a, have a plan, hold yourself accountable to that plan. Um, and if you become a lifer, take care of people around you um, and your subordinates, mm -hmm. um, because that'll be um, the best way that you know, you can affect changes how you lead. So many young people get in and say, and find out, well, wait a second. I didn't join up to watch one of my comrades shoot this farmer's goats or listen over the radio like I did at a helicopter pilot shooting a farmer's water buffalo. Wait a second. That's not part of the mission that I signed up for. Um, did you did you run into any of that? Well, wait a second. The Air Force was supposed to be, and here it is, something different. Yes, well, I hadn't um, directly. I've never been outside the wire. Like I said, my, my role, my, my Air Force specialty was behind the wire, if you will, in a support role. Um, but I have, um, enlisted reports across um, the years that we've been in war. So the last 15 years of my reports talk about 
um, my supporting an end uh, mission. A lot of times people say, well, you know, I wasn't the one that pulled the trigger. Oh, but you supplied the bullets, right? Or I wasn't a part of that, you know, special mission, but the part, you know, the, the small, you know, piece component to whatever widget (laughs) made the thing go, um, you know, connecting yourself, you know, it depends on, you know, how you do that. But a lot of folks that I know, um, also are starting to share some of the same things like an understanding that war is not this big distant thing. It takes a whole bunch of us um, to think that we're doing good um, to participate. And mm-hmm. when you figure out, when you find out, when you have that conscious awakening, because I believe it will come, um, when you have that awakening of what you're participating in, it will hit you like a ton of bricks and you will feel uh, depending on what unit you're in or if you have conscious people around you you will feel um alone um and a lot of times we don't say this enough um but on active duty i experienced way too many on um on duty suicides Mm. where um you know this isn't just the the 22 a day veteran um on duty and where active duty suicides was was growing off the charts in the last 10 years while on active duty, particularly in the last um, six. Um, And so um, one of the things that I think is just really important is that, you know, people seek out mental health, whether it's on duty or find somewhere in the community, if, you know, if if, if you feel like it's going to be a threat to your you know, your position or whatever, um, because it, it does. Um, once you start to realize that there's the propaganda arm of the military, and when you start to really process what you're participating in, what you, um, so once I got to that level and just the, you know, um, the closer I got to the truth, I felt like was shocking. And I got to that truth at the end of my career. So when I got to the Special Operations Command that I realized not just what the Air Force was doing, but with the Marine arm of Special Ops, the Army, and you know a little bit about what the Navy was doing, that I was just like, it was mind blowing. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, again, I just say a chilling effect um, when you realize that you are a part of this thing that has nothing to do with bringing democracy and, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And, the, and, and oh, yeah. spoiler alert, it's not about keeping America safe. You are, they tell you, you are keeping your family back home. Uh-huh. They will find out the city you're from and tell you with a blank stare that this is why you continue to do what it is. You say a couple hua hua's, you know, and rar in the, in the unit, you know, you know, camaraderie sessions and, and, you know, you can get lost in that or, you know, the reality is just starts to set in and that this is some bullshit, excuse me. Well, when you see the same uh, hardware being used against <laughs> you people back home, <laughs> you, really, it's hard to swallow. <laughs> There's so many things that I feel like led to this, you know, bubbling up of things. But <laughs> when you, come back home to your hometown and see a militarized Chicago police department. Um, and you see the very weapons of war rolling down city streets to serve something as simple as a warrant. A lot of times it's probably even to the wrong house and terrifying and terrorizing children and families because they've got the wrong address dress but when you see that happening and when you see the the police department dress no different than those who were going out on a mission between Kuwait and Iraq um, you start to really realize that something is off Um, because in 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 2020 if if we're if we're being completely honest and open to what we witnessed in 2020 we saw how quick not just the National Guard but that active duty component, specialized units, 
um, were were called on black folks who were rising up after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. um, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many other names. And historically, mm -hmm. um, I'll be honest, I did not know how this had been a historical um, aspect of every time the National Guard had participated in things, um, they were agitators to peace, right? Whether it's oh, in sure. LA 92, back in 68, um, I think we all saw the National Guard raised their weapons to folks in um, New Orleans after the Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, until, you know, the general came up and told them, put their weapons down. These people need help, not, you know, threat. And so no matter where the situation has been, and then, you know, forward to what we saw in Portland, in Louisville, Atlanta, here in Chicago. And it goes um, way back to uh, the strike breakers and yeah. <clears throat> National Guard against the coal miners and sure. auto workers. But you know, where, know that. <laughs> you, you know where they didn't go? They didn't go to the Capitol on January 6th. You know, on base, I'm on duty, having conversations with the people that worked with me at the time. It was 10 white males, one white woman. Um, a black woman had later come, but, you know, at first I was the only black woman in our section. Um, you know, these were uh, special operations like legacy. Like I was the newest person who had come from sort of the outside. So they have a culture of people. They had been there together for 20 some odd plus years. And, you know, to listen to you know, just their survivalistic um, ideas was sort of one thing. These were people who I even went out on their boats. Um, you know, I embraced the salt life. Um, and I would go away on temporary duty. They would watch my house. Um, but, and I say that to say that I was an exception in a way because I was their peer. But when things in the social world, particularly Trayvon Martin's murder, um, folks started telling their truth. And I just feel like it was a shift. Also, when President Obama, um, you know, was in office, um, everything was sort of just a different racial conversation. But what I learned while at AFSOC was how many active duty white folks were plotting, planning, donating resources, creating resources, um, and communicated in very dark ways that would not align with their oath to the country. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll be very direct and say that I would not be surprised if my former first sergeant and several of the guys who were in my office um, weren't a part of, um, you know, what would lead up to January 6th. And that's because they talked about it this is years before it happened, right? So yeah. probably eight years before January 6th, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I heard folks talking about by any means necessary mm -hmm. that, you know, um, they were going to participate in the zombie apocalypse. I didn't know what the zombie apocalypse meant, mm -hmm. but I now know that it's sort of this, you know, um, idea that a lot of these, you know, groups um, have some would say that align with the alt-right that talk about um, you know the race war or a race war being necessary yeah. Um, so yeah so to see what happened and then to later I mean I became a little obsessive with researching who participated in January 6th mm -hmm. because I was like oh wow here it is this is the stuff that folks talked about how you know, they had already researched all sorts of strategies. Um, I wasn't privy to all of it, but when I can piece what I could piece together, um, they were well-trained. They trained with folks who weren't in the military. So again, I'm sharing with you to be very clear, people who had career long special operations training, mm. organizing and training with folks in the local community in their sports, that's what they were calling it. Um, you know, whether they amass land, they pooled their money to buy weapons before they were, um, you know, decommissioned. Uh, I guess there was some things moving in the, you know, gun um, constraints. But just to see that no matter what, 
that there were folks on active duty organizing around real, in real dark ways. And so January 6th did not shock me around how many military and active military people um, participated because I had seen it years before. Were you ever aware that any uh, vetting or background checks was being carried out about any active duty military based on any uh, things they had said or done? No, um, I personally <laughs> uh, <laughs> fell out of favor with my command when I started filing in inspector general complaints. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't buy the fact that the, the Pentagon is just completely blindsided by January 6th. <laughs> right, right. Because if they would read the complaints, and I know I'm not the only one, but because mm -hmm. I was sitting at a headquarters, mm -hmm. my complaints, the next level of leadership was the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. There was no in between. So when I you know, sent my fourth complaint, it was to the Department of De Defense, I um, Inspector General, and then I filed a congressional complaint with my congressperson, and the Pentagon gave a response that was lip service towards this is not, you know, she's, you know, all the things that they can use to yeah. to say there's not a problem, mm -hmm. but no. And I be and I and I say that because white supremacy is a team sport. You might not be racist or discriminative, but you aren't going to invite an open um, inspection on your unit, which means you have to deny the claim that's coming out um, full stop. Right. So right. again, I don't claim that everyone in my chain of command was racist, but they participated by shutting down um, mm -hmm. a lot of discourse, training, and being better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right. So you filed four complaints and they still allowed you to retire. I did, but I, they demoted me um, one year really? um, ahead of my retirement date. One year to the day that I was eligible to retire, I was demoted. Uh. That'll, that'll, yeah, that'll do it. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of the folks that were telling me to be quiet, you know, were telling me like, look, we told you, you know, mm -hmm. um, it was two days after the congressional complaint hit the Pentagon, I guess there was some notification that came back down to the headquarters, what I had done, um, and that they were responding to the congressman that I was called in to the carpet and demoted, um, which is unconscionable, right? Like most folks, you get to a sanctuary period in the end of your career where you've honorably served, and you should be allowed to retire in that highest rank. Um, but AFSOC has something different in store for me. Right. And your congressperson apparently uh did nothing to try to stop that or did nothing fast forward later as I'm uh, very engaged in the community and went and you know was pushing for um, I can't remember what we were pushing for his support um, they remembered my name and offered to reopen um, they were taking them up on that opportunity but I think about it here recently because I don't see, I see people coming forward and being brave. I see officers rescinding their commission. I saw a recent Air Force pilot who rescinded his commission to go to law school, um, stating um, the, the racist culture that he was um, subjected to. So I'm seeing a lot of discourse. Mm -hmm. Maybe the more of us that speak up um, and out in a, in, a, in a more public way, um, we can get some change. Again- well, No matter what happened, if you could get at least uh some public, uh, you know, in the press or, or otherwise get more, yeah. the, the general public knowing what's going on, that's accomplishing a lot, whether you succeed in getting justice for yourself or not. But. I mean, so you have to accept that when you speak out, you, ex you accept, mm -hmm. you know, the people who, you know, question. People are automatic, I believe people are programmed to automatically disprove or you know, try to yeah. just you know whatever they can to throw um, a wrench in. Um, you know, when Black folks are speaking up and speaking mm -hmm. out, there are folks okay. who feel personally attacked when yeah. the military yeah. is talked about in being a racist institution. Um, mm -hmm. And so you have to accept wanting to put yourself out there like that. Yeah. So well, well, talking about speaking out, you have a you have a podcast. Yeah, so through Veterans for Peace, um, once, you know, the murder of George Floyd really did, um, just did something to me. So reached out to folks at the national office who were already thinking about a statement, but we crafted 
you know, within days of hearing that the the National Guard was going to be deployed to Minneapolis, we came together and wrote a strongly, I would say a strong letter, um, you know, requesting one from the higher, you know, commands to stand down, but also to the individual soldiers, like don't take arms against your neighbors um, in this moment. And, you know, the very next week, we started Stand Down Live, which is, you know, sort of a one hour webinar type show on that streams on Facebook and YouTube um, that began, and it's literally called Stand Down because that's what the letter was, you know, the essence of the letter was that we wanted the National Guard to not stand in this moment and continue that tradition of showing up in spaces where there's black um, rebellion. Um, and so that is a weekly show um, 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 Central, if you go to the Veterans for Peace page on Facebook and or YouTube, you will find us there. Um, my co-host, um, Mega Seif, is uh, an amazingly talented artistic type who traditionally, a lot of times, will typically um, share some of his art with us. Um, and then there's Mike James, who's a Navy um, veteran who participated in um, the propaganda. He was a combat camera. He took all the great pictures, um, you know, whether stateside or deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we oftentimes talk about our military experiences um, and, you know, chop it up with guests. So we're always looking for people who, you know, particularly veterans, but veterans who are engaged in their community to come on and talk to us and talk about what um, social justice, to be veterans for black lives, um, to be veterans for peace at home and abroad. Um, so we talk about a myriad of things. We've talked about COINTELPRO, um, you know, to moral injury, um, to supporting um, young people. There's a group, um, if you all aren't already familiar, the dissenters. They're a young group of college students who are, you know, really organizing around anti-militarism, um, the military industrial complex, and are doing a public education around that at the collegiate level, which is just amazing. So we've had guests on of all stripes, intergenerational, mm -hmm. um, polished or not. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Great. That's, that's fantastic. That's awesome. And that's Wednesdays at um and you can you can just click on the veteransforpeace.org website and there is a page that comes up you just click on the page and it'll tune you right in oh see that's even better yes so if you're not on facebook um and or most people have youtube i think youtube is pretty much favorable for folks but we're also there you could just literally search veterans for peace and if not veteransforpeace.org is the website you can find a lot out about our work and how we really are moving in positive and i would just say in a generational way so if you're a vietnam era veteran or you know anything in between to post 9 11 there's something for you one of the things that's um, trans that's really exciting out of our truth and recruitment work is the gamers for peace and to see how many young folks are and active duty members that are joining veterans for peace to be a part of the truth and recruitment work but particularly the gamers for peace so they're online on twitch um, and discord um, multiple days a week playing video games you know dispelling the military uh you know recruitment propaganda um, and just really, I would say popular education is what's happening between mm -hmm. common folk. And it's a growing um, platform for veterans to, you know, talk to um, young high schoolers or college students that are considering um, whether they're going to join or not. Veterans for Peace has got a lot, of, a lot of things going on right now. Yeah. We do. I think it's an exciting time, whether you're a veteran um, or... Um, you know, a child of a veteran. My daughter is um, a graduating high school senior and she joined um, ma mainly because I think at some point she's like, well, you're dragging me to the events. Um, I hear all of the, the, the planning that goes into, you know, putting on a, a webinar. So she made the decision to join a couple of months ago um, while in high school because, I mean, she's had a front row seat to what this is and you know her 
her dad and I, he did 22 years mm -hmm. um, and retired. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's seen things and has a, a vantage point that is uh, quite unique. Is there anything you'd like to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Yeah, I would say for those who, um, you know, no matter what your military experience, I would say to lead with questions. Um, you know, the military did a lot of things. One of them is it taught us how to, um, it didn't teach us how to really react in a way that leads with compassion and care and understanding and curiosity, right? We learned a lot of bad habits around the things that we didn't understand and how we treat people. Um, and so, you know, as a veteran community for peace, I think that we really do have to live up to what peace truly means. And we have to dismantle these structures um, and uh, of, 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 of white supremacy and imperialism and all of the, you know, militarism, all of the isms that don't serve us well, be a part of that. Engage in the community um, that doesn't look like you. Um, be, a, be of service in a way that doesn't include you being centered, um, which is what, you know, I had to do, and I'm from Chicago, but I came back home and humbled myself and, you know, share my resources with my community in a way that isn't trying to, um, you know, just, you know, stand in the way and just see myself as a, as a citizen um, of service in a different way. So if that is what, you know, is in your heart for peace, do that in, in very constructive ways. And then finally, um, you know, I think it's very important that we have peer support. So we've created a medium for folks that are active duty. I'm excited about the folks that have already reached out to us, um, asking questions when their command fails them. Um, email us, stand down at veteransforpeace.org is our email. We have peer support. If you wanna to talk to someone in your branch of service, we have a veteran to pair you with. Um, again, uh, we have a close connection with the GI rights hotline, but hit us up on the, on the peer support, stand down at mm -hmm. veteransforpeace.org and we will um, reach out and support you. And I think that's the best way as veterans, we can connect with those that are currently experiencing what we have already. I think in order to really be true to what we say, peace is a verb. All um, right. So let's let's continue to put one step in front of the other until we until we achieve that goal. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, I guess the next time we'll see you, it'll be probably at the conference. Yes. If you haven't already, please register. The conference is going to be here in August. We have a great lineup, great speakers, great entertainment. Go ahead and register today. Now, we did ask Natasha for a song, and she texted us a message. Tracy Chapman, Revolution. Here it is. Have a great week. Don't you know that talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know Talking about a revolution it sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a revolution it sounds People gonna rise up and get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 Oh, I said you better run, run, run. But a revolution Yes, finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution Oh, no Talking about a revolution Oh, while they're standing in the welfare lines Crying
the doors of service, armies of salvation. We sing down.